John 11, 1 through 27. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he, might, that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of, on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the scriptures will be on the screens behind me. Um, but if you did bring one, I would invite you to get that out. Uh, when you came in, if you received a note sheet, you can get that out as well. If you did not receive a note sheet, but you really, really want one, we will afford you the awkwardness of getting up out of your seat and walking out to the lobby. There, The notes are out there. And there goes Corey um, on cue. Um, so uh, if you would like notes, uh, Corey may bring a few extras in just in case. Um, so uh, if you do want one, you can just less awkwardly raise your hand or finger and he'll bring it to you. Um, and the notes, uh, by the way, are just a guide for you. So they do not have every single word that I'm going to say, unfortunately, because if I just said the words there, we'd be out of here in about five minutes. Um, but we'll be here a little bit longer than that. However, the notes will serve as a guide for you as we are walking through this text. We are continuing 
to look at the I am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, John records Jesus seven different times offering statements about himself, self-claims, where he begins with this phrase, I am. So far, we've looked at Jesus saying in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And then the next week, we looked at John chapter 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then the third week, we looked at John chapter 10, where Jesus says in the same passage, both, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. This morning, as James read for us, we're looking at Jesus' self-claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, why do we need to do this? Just as another reminder, we're spending time looking at these statements from Jesus because more than anything else in this chaotic world, more than anything else, we need to make sure that we know the real Jesus. There are a lot of conceptions of Jesus out there. There are a lot of conceptions of Jesus in the church. There there may be a lot of conceptions of Jesus within your own heart, ideas that you have about Jesus. And and these are not so innocent. It's really important and it's really consequential because what you believe about Jesus will immediately dictate what you expect from Jesus. And if you are expecting Jesus to be something or do something that he is not or has not promised to do, your life will be one of disappointment. And you will become disillusioned with Christianity or the gospel or Jesus himself. So it is very important for us to know the real Jesus. Faith in the real Jesus saves us eternally and changes us gradually over time. Faith in a phony Jesus just fills the time. It it does absolutely nothing for us except for help us get further and further away from the real Jesus. So we need the real Jesus, and the only way for us to see if our concept of Jesus aligns with reality is for us to come to these passages to see what Jesus says about himself. Um, Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life offers us a better perspective on our lives in this world now, as well as a deep and specific hope for life after death. You see, one of the ways that Satan tempts us is by simple distraction. He wants to distract you. And do you know what he wants to distract you from? He wants to distract you from reality. From reality. Okay? Um, We all have lots of problems in our lives. Lots of things going on. Lots of decisions to make. And what Satan wants is for us to be distracted from reality. He wants us to grow numb to reality. So, for example, when when you have a problem in your life, isn't it often true that your problem often does less damage than your obsession over the problem? That that becomes the the focal point. Um, If you're you're married, um, whenever you have conflict with, with your spouse... Aren't you tempted? Doesn't, doesn't it get worse when you're distracted from reality? When instead of focusing on what's going on in your own heart that contributes to the conflict, instead you focus on the actions of the other person or you focus on the consequences of the conflict. You're distracted from reality with your children. Parents, don't you typically, whenever there's an, an issue or a conflict with your children, don't you just get together and talk about, now what's wrong with that kid? What's going on? 
What's going on with that kid? And children, don't you, whenever your parents and you are kind of, kind of in, a, in a tiff, in a fight, don't you get together whenever you're in the playroom and you're like, what's wrong with mom today? What's going on with dad? What's wrong with him? Why are they doing this? It's, it's, a, it's a ploy of Satan. He distracts us from reality. Jesus is reality. That's why I love how he gives these statements. He doesn't just say, for example, I have come to bring you spiritual nourishment. What does he say? I am the bread of life. He doesn't just say, I have come to show you the way, to reveal God's glory to you. He says, no, I am the light of the world. He doesn't just come and say, hey, look, if you want salvation, you got to come to me. He says, I'm the door the only way into God's fold. He doesn't just say, I'm going to lead you through life. He says, I am the good shepherd. And so here, Jesus is bringing us away from our distractions and back to reality to help us see not only that he offers us eternal life, but that within Jesus himself is resurrection, is new life. I am the resurrection and life. This passage shows us three things, and these three headings are in your notes. Jesus first shows us our need for resurrection. Second, Jesus shows us how he is the source of resurrection. And finally, Jesus gives us a sign of resurrection. So let's look at these one by one first. Jesus shows us our need for resurrection. Okay, so this story begins with a dire situation. So we we jump right in pretty heavy from the jump. A family that Jesus loves, the family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, uh, they're in serious need, and they really need some help. And, and we see that in the fact that Mary and Martha don't take the time to go to Jesus. They send a messenger. They send a messenger to Jesus and letting him know that their brother Lazarus is very sick. And this messenger communicates urgency, meaning that Lazarus isn't just, isn't just under the weather. Lazarus is nearing death. And so this is a last-ditch effort on, on the part of the sisters in sending for Jesus because they have seen, they have witnessed Jesus' healing power. And so this request from, for his presence is this last-ditch effort to save their brother. And they are confident that Jesus can bring immediate healing. And by the way, he can. And, and like Mary and Martha, whenever you first read that, especially if you're not familiar with the story, and you first see that they send this request in verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then what do we expect in verse 4? In verse 4, we expect Jesus to say something like, oh my goodness, you know, my friend, my dear friend Lazarus, who is sick, let's, hey, get the disciples together, let's go, we got to go to Bethany right now, we have no time to waste, we have to get there so that I can heal him. And instead, in verse 4, we're met with this, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's, it sounds a little calloused. And then, in verse 5, we get this statement from John, just in case you're worried about Jesus' heart in this moment. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then in verse 6, we're shocked again, okay? If Jesus loves them so much, maybe John's letting us know, you know, Jesus is just telling them, hey, this sickness isn't as bad as you thought, but I'm still going to come. No, Jesus says in verse 6, or or we're told in verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what's his response? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What an odd story. What, what an odd flow. Here's the news. Lazarus is sick. He's about to die. 
Jesus says, this isn't going to lead to death. And then we're told Jesus loved this family and loved Lazarus. And then we're told, so, since he loved him so much, he decided not to go to his aid. He stayed. He stayed and did not go to Bethany. And we also learn that this delay is not out of callousness, it's not out of laziness, but it's out of compassion and love. And so we're presented with this paradox here. Jesus loved Lazarus, so he delayed in coming to his aid. Later on in the passage, if you remember, both Mary and Martha voiced this phrase, if only you had been there. If only you had been there, Jesus, our brother would not have died. What's happening here? Well, Mary and Martha, they're exhibiting a misconception of Jesus that we tend to share. And that's that Jesus has come to meet our every immediate need. Don't we just expect this of him? He's all powerful. He's all good. We read examples in the Gospels of how he's healing people and, and caring for people and feeding people. But, but in truth, it's a misconception that Jesus has come to meet your every immediate need. He has not. The prosperity gospel is one of the worst versions of this misconception. And it's the view that Jesus has come to meet our every need. And we will have prosperity, we will have wealth, and we will have health if we just believe in Jesus enough. And if you are not healthy or you are not wealthy, it's because not, not because of Jesus. He's trying his best. It's because you don't have enough faith. It's a very destructive theology that crushes people. Um, it, it is anti-gospel. You see, Mary and Martha, they believed in the power of Jesus, and they were confident in the love of Jesus for them. That's the basis of this request. The one whom you love is ill. They have faith in Jesus, and everything they believe about Jesus is absolutely true. But they believed that Jesus was here to meet their immediate need, when in reality, Jesus has come to meet our deepest need. Mary and Martha believed their deepest need was their brother's immediate physical healing. It's a misconception, but, you know, it's not just Mary and Martha, all right? Um, the disciples have a misconception about Jesus, too. Okay, so, so jump down here and read this really interesting dialogue with the disciples. So verse 7, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he waits two days, he looks at his disciples and says, hey, it's time. It's time. Let's go to Judea. We're going to go to Bethany. We're going to go to Mary, Martha, and we're going to go to Lazarus. And the disciples, here's their response. Because they have a different immediate need, but they still think that Jesus is there to meet it. So they say, Rabbi, in case you forgot, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? You see, Bethany was, was very, very close to Jerusalem, very close to Jerusalem. And so they, they did not want to get near Jerusalem because the religious leaders were, were there to, to kill Jesus. They had already tried to kill Jesus. So they had retreated into Galilee. And so the disciples were like, no, we need to, we need to let things kind of cool down a little bit. We don't need to go there. And, and then we see Jesus say, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, listen, I love, I love how clear this is. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. 
but I go to awaken him. And the disciples, they're really confused. And I don't really understand how they're confused by this because it's a common idiom to, to describe death as sleep. Um, but they do miss it. And so the disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And there's one option for why they may have missed this very common idiom. There's no reason for the disciples to think that Jesus actually meant that he was just asleep and that he could be woken up. They wanted that to be what Jesus meant because of their misconception about Jesus. You see, the disciples had an immediate need, and it was political liberation. They had a particular conception of Jesus that as the Messiah, as the Savior King, that he was here to overthrow the Romans, that he was here to overthrow the spiritual religious leaders of the day and that he would reestablish King David's throne and he would reign on that throne forevermore. So in their minds, why would we go to Judea and get close to Jerusalem where you might die because messiahs can't die? You can't die. If you die, it is a failed mission. The disciples believed that their deepest need was immediate political liberation and that Jesus was there to meet that need. So they hear Jesus say, Lazarus is just asleep, and they're like, we hope so, because if he's just asleep, there's no reason we should risk your life by going. But Jesus came to meet their deepest need, and they needed to go to Bethany to gain more clarity about who Jesus really is. That's why Jesus says, I'm so glad I wasn't there. I'm so glad I wasn't there, because your faith is so incomplete. You need to witness resurrection. You need to see who I really am. And you need to see that it is only through death and resurrection that I, as the Messiah, can be what you want me to be, the Savior of the world. Listen, we have a lot of needs. And a lot of us have a lot of immediate needs. We have physical health needs, we have emotional health needs. We have mental health needs. We face a lot of turmoil and hardship. And many of us have suffered in so many ways. And some of you have suffered in ways that I can't even begin to relate to. Our relationships, even if they're good right now, can weaken and they can break. The life that we have right now, it may not be the life that we always wanted. And you may be facing the prospect that the rest of your life may not be what you wanted it to be. Some of us are unemployed, and some of us are just unhappy in our jobs. And so what I'm about to say does not diminish or belittle these very real needs. It was a very real need that Mary and Martha had. And Jesus isn't belittling it. It was a very real need that the disciples had. And Jesus wasn't belittling it, but he's come to do much more than what we think we immediately need. While Mary and Martha wanted immediate physical healing, and though the disciples wanted immediate political liberation, and both groups believed that Jesus was here to bring it, Jesus wants them and he wants us to see that we have a deeper need that he has indeed come to meet. Do you know what your deepest need is this morning? Some of you are thinking, salvation. It's a big one. It is. And, you know, this, this goes hand in hand with it. Your deepest need is resurrection. Do you know that? That's your deepest need. Do you know why? Because death is your greatest enemy. Death. 
death is your greatest enemy, and so resurrection is your deepest need. Because despite all of the physical needs that we have, the immediate needs that we have, even if every single one of those needs was met, one day you are going to die. One day I am going to die. And there is nothing that I can do, that you can do, to stop it from happening. Tim Keller is one of my favorite modern theologians, writers, preachers. He has a book I really want to encourage you to get. It's within a series, but this book is called On Death. On Death. Real, real short book. I would encourage you to get it. Here's how he opens the book. He says, Death is the great interruption, tearing loved ones away from us or us from them. Death is the great schism, ripping apart the material and immaterial parts of our being and sundering a whole person who was never meant to be disembodied, even for a moment. Death is the great insult, because it reminds us, as Shakespeare said, that we are worm food. Death is hideous and frightening and cruel and unusual. It is not the way life is supposed to be, and our grief in the face of death acknowledges that. Death is our great enemy, more than anything. It makes a claim on each and every one of us, pursuing us relentlessly through all our days. Modern people write and talk endlessly about love, especially romantic love, which eludes many. But no one can avoid death. It has been said that all the wars and plagues have never actually raised the death toll. It has always been one for each and every person. Death is our greatest enemy, our deepest problem. It is something that every single person in this room, if Christ does not return beforehand, it is something that we will all face. Death takes, and in the words of the musical Hamilton, it takes and it takes and it takes and it takes. Death creates a dual sensation in our souls, which we groan in anguish and anger, but we also long for something more. And we know that death is actually our greatest problem and our deliverance from it, our greatest need, by the way that we think about it in relation to our other needs. Think about it for just a second. For most problems that we face, there is a natural solution, or at least options that you have, no matter how bad it gets. There's, there's usually an option. We can go to marriage counseling, or we can go to therapy. We, we can make connections to help us find a better job. We can go to the doctor. We can receive medication. Sometimes there's treatment. There always seems to be a way out. But what option do we have to save us from death that we could just think of on our own? Who do we turn to? Where do we go? When was the last time that you sat with this heavy reality that you are going to die? It's coming. And it's frightening because you don't know when. How, how frightening is that? To know something is without a doubt going to happen, but to have no clue when it's going to happen. We love to feel like we're in control. We have no control over that. We're at our most vulnerable when we think about death. Do you know what happens after you die? 
Do you have an answer to that question? What hope of healing can we have for death? See, Jesus is correcting a misconception about himself in the early movements of the story. Although Jesus has not come to meet every single need you face in life, he has come to meet your deepest need. He has come to rescue you from your greatest enemy. Jesus has come to deal with death, and he's the only one who can do it. So we read this story with great anticipation. What is Jesus going to do in the face of death? Because the rest of us, do you know what we do when we go to Bethany after our friend has died? We weep and we mourn and we cry and we comfort and it's all we got. What is Jesus going to do when he goes? He delays his journey to Bethany. He even delays it by two days. Do you know why? Because Jesus knew, being omnipotent, he knew that Lazarus had already died. And he waits two days, do you know why? So that by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Here's why that's important. Jews believed that the soul of a person hovered over and near the body for at least three days. So that there was natural hope for resuscitation. But after three days, and the body starts to decay, the soul has gone, there's no chance no chance anyone's getting up out of that tomb. And so Jesus delays on purpose so it's clear to every single person there, Lazarus is dead. It's our deepest need, our deepest problem. How is he, how is he going to meet it? Point number two. Here's how. Jesus shows us that he is the source of resurrection. Okay, so now fast forward. Jesus arrives in Bethany and even when he's outside the city, Martha hears that he's near. And Martha, man, she's a gunner. She is a, a go-getter. She books it. And she gets out there to meet Jesus, to let him know before he even gets in, hey, I just want to let you know, my brother has died. And Martha explains that Lazarus is dead. She voices both frustration and faith in saying that if only Jesus had been there, her brother would not have died. And then Jesus interestingly responds to her and says... Your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again, verse 23. And then verse 24, Martha said back to him, I know, Lord. It's almost like, you know, when the pastor's trying to comfort you after you've lost a loved one and we're trying our best and, and, we, and we give a theological uh, comfort like that. Hey, listen, you know, one day in the future, your husband, your son, your child, your friend will rise again. And you're just like, mm, I know, I know, they're there, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and so she just, she agrees with him. Because Martha, as a Jew, had this hope of resurrection. In the Old Testament, there are concepts of resurrection. And so they, she believed that one day in the future, her brother would be raised from the dead. And that, that he, would, he would have a body again. So she just believes that Jesus is there to comfort her and tell her that. But in the words of D.A. Carson, here's what D.A. Carson has to say. Jesus' concern here is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. What Jesus wants his dear friend to see here is not just that she can grieve with hope, but that the reason she can grieve with hope is because Jesus himself is there. Martha doesn't just need theological comfort. She needs to see the person behind her hope. So what does Jesus do? He makes a claim. He makes a claim, and then he gives a promise. Let's look at both. 
So the claim in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So that's the claim. We'll stop there. Martha had just said, Jesus, I'm confident. I know you are right. One day my brother's going to rise from the dead on the last day at the resurrection. And Jesus turns to her and he looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine being there and, and, and just knowing, like, you're sad, you're grieving, but I know one day in the future my brother's going to rise again? And he says, hey, right here, I am the resurrection. Resurrection power is in me. I am the source. Your brother, the only reason you can have that hope is because of me, because I am here. Um, Jesus is essentially saying, I am the source of life after death. I am and the fountain of new life. Lazarus can only be raised from the dead because Jesus is the resurrection. You and I can only be raised from the dead because Jesus is the resurrection. Now, what, what does this really mean for us? Well, if Jesus is the source for resurrection and life, then the only way that we can have resurrection and life is if we come to Jesus. See, it clarifies things for us. It clarifies who Jesus is. He isn't just one option among many. He isn't just a really powerful guy. He isn't just a really gifted teacher. Jesus is the source of resurrection. He is the source for life after death. You ask a number of people, what does it take to have eternal life? How does a person get to heaven? And, and what do you hear people typically say? Even some Christians, you'll hear them say, well, we earn eternal life. By following Jesus. We follow Jesus, we obey him, we do what he says, and then he will award us eternal life. If that's the case, then Jesus is not the source of resurrection. You are. See, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, Jesus does not point us to the source of resurrection in life. He is the source. If you're in a desert and there's a well and that well contains water, then it is the source of not only water, but it is the source of life for a community. The only way that you could live in a place like that is to go to that source to get what you need for life. Jesus is the source. He has come to conquer death, our greatest enemy, and he does it by being himself the resurrection and the life, meaning the only hope we have in the face of death is Jesus. He's it. Okay, but then he gives a promise. He gives a promise. Look, look what he says in verse 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then a two-part promise. Whoever Part one, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay, in part two, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay, so Jesus is promising two things here. First, he's promising that we will be raised in the future. But he's also promising that we will be raised in the present. We will experience resurrection on the last day when Jesus returns, and we experience resurrection, new life, right now. All right, so in this promise, Jesus clarifies two things. First, he clarifies our future. We have hope of future resurrection in Jesus 
if we believe in Jesus. So here's the promise for all of you in this room that have, have expressed faith in Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, although you are going to die physically, you will rise again. You will live again. Even though they're going to bury your body in the ground or if, if you're cremated and, and, and your body is, is eventually gone and turns to dust, one day in the future, when Jesus returns, you will be raised from the dead. And your soul will not just be floating around in heaven for all eternity. Your, your soul will be reunited to your body, and your body will be glorified. Your body will be perfect. It will be imperishable. It will be incorruptible. There will be nothing that can stain it. It will be perfect. And that's only true if you're connected to the source of resurrection power, Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, even though you're going to die, you will live again. Death is not the end of our story, folks, nor the end of our bodies, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So here's the future that's awaiting you. One day, you're going to be raised from the dead. One day, you're going to die. And if you're connected to Jesus, there's going to be another day where you're raised to life, and then your new glorified body will inhabit a new earth that will be perfect and full of joy and gladness and peace. And you will be there with your risen Savior. All right, so he clarifies our future. But in this promise, he also does something really interesting. He clarifies our present. You see what he says here? He's saying two things that seem contradictory. Look at the promise. Whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live. And then he says in verse 26, it's like he's going back on himself. He says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, which is it? Which is it? Uh, are we going to die and then live again, or are we never going to die? You know? Um, and Jesus says both. If you're connected to him and his resurrection power, not only do you have hope of future resurrection, you have hope of present resurrection. We have resurrection life now in Jesus. Here's the promise for every single person in this room who's trusted in Jesus. And by the way, if you have never trusted in Jesus and you believe in him this morning, it starts today for you. Resurrection life starts today. If you believe in Jesus, you will be raised to a kind of life that will never end. Will never end. When you believe in Jesus, you are raised with Jesus to a new life that will never come to an end. It's eternal life that begins now. But I want you to think about it like this. What is sanctification? What is our growth in Christ? Why do we read the Bible and pray and come to church and do all the things that we do and serve others? Why, why are we really passionate about our hearts being shaped more and more into the image of Jesus? What's the point of that? That is our new life. Why do we care about loving each other and serving each other and being merciful to each other? Why do we care about developing the character of Jesus? It's because it's who we are now. The whole point of sanctification, the whole point of growth in Christ is to become who we are in Jesus. And who we are in Jesus is who we are, is who we will be in Jesus forever. So, so here's what we're doing. We are cultivating habits now. We are cultivating character now that will be our character only perfectly 10 billion years from now. That's the goal, to live now as you will live 10 billion years from now because the life that you have in Jesus now will never, ever come to an end. He clarifies our future. We will be raised. 
but he clarifies our present. If you're in Christ today, you have resurrection life. So I want to encourage you to press into that, to start thinking of your life now at work and in our city as a life that will never end. If you start becoming a loving person, a merciful person, a patient person, your new motivation is not just so I can, you know, maybe earn favor with God or, or you know, uh, curry favor at work. Your motivation is this is just who you are now, and it's who you will be forevermore. So he shows us that he is the source of resurrection. One more thing here. Thankfully, he doesn't just leave us with a statement. Jesus gives us a sign. Jesus doesn't just say that he is the resurrection and the life. He shows that he is the resurrection and the life. What good reason do we have to believe this claim from Jesus? Well, the reason we have is that Jesus gives this sign to seal what he says. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Look at verse 38 of John 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I love how Martha still doesn't get it. She's like, Jesus had just told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she's like, uh-huh. And then he's like, okay, we'll move the stone away. Why would we do that? There's a dead guy in there. I mean, she's like, oh, my goodness, Martha, poor girl. Um, uh, but I would probably be the same. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Don't you love that John said it that way? He could have easily said, Mary and Martha's brother came out. He could have easily said, Lazarus came out. No, he wants you to feel it. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus shows us that he is our hope for new life now and resurrected life later in these two ways, through divine compassion. You see, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you know what he was doing? He goes to the tomb, shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus, what? Wept. Jesus wept. Isn't that odd? Jesus knows what he's about to do. If, if there's anyone who would have been more emotionally secure in that moment, it would have been Jesus, and yet he's coming to the tomb and he cries. And he has anger. This, this word in verse 38, he was deeply moved. It's a word that, that could easily be translated indignant. He's angry at death. He hates death. So we can trust that Jesus will raise us because he's right there with us in our hatred of death. He's right there with us in his grief in the midst of death. But then he gives us this picture. Do you see the picture? Sure, he really does raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's showing us something when he does that. See, his command for Lazarus to come out is a picture of what will one day physically happen to us, and it's also a picture of what spiritually happens to us right now Lazarus come out new life it's a picture of it but the last thing Lazarus resurrection is also a picture of Jesus's resurrection because 
showing us a sign is one thing. But you see, that sign is actually foreshadowing something that's about to happen. Jesus is going to die. Against the wishes and conceptions of his disciples, Jesus is going to die. And three days later, Jesus was raised physically, bodily, from the dead. Here's why that's important. We have hope not just because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. We have hope for new life now and life after death later because Jesus actually did die. He really died and he was really buried and he actually came back from the dead and he was raised to new life. So he ultimately proves that he is the resurrection and the life by taking back the life that he had given. If you're in this room and you know Jesus, you can be confident today that you have eternal life that begins right now, one day will culminate in your bodily resurrection from the dead because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he himself was raised. If you're not a believer in this room, you today can step into this resurrection life and have hope for a certain thing that is going to happen, your death. You can face it with hope if you come to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, the promise is here. And we can believe him because he didn't just say it and he didn't just give us a sign. He himself died and rose from the dead. Would you come to Jesus this morning? Would you believe in him? Christian, would you have your faith renewed in him today? Let me pray for us.